Marlena Wasiski-Kuhn. I'm one of the third-year residents at the University of Cincinnati, and I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Justin Benoit. He's currently one of the associate professors of emergency medicine at the University of Cincinnati. Dr. Benoit got his bachelor's degree at the University of Maryland College Park and went on to get his medical degree from Case Western Reserve University. He did his residency in emergency medicine at the University of Cincinnati, followed by a fellowship in emergency medical services and clinical research. That's where he also got his master's degree in clinical and translational research. Those were both at the University of Cincinnati as well. So Dr. Benoit, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks Um, for having me. Yeah. So how did you get started in emergency medicine research? Well, you know, it definitely was a little bit of a long path. I didn't do much research in undergrad, but when I got with undergrad, when I got done, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So I actually had four years in between undergrad and when I started medical school. And during that time, I actually did basic science research in molecular genetics at the University of Maryland. And the main thing that taught me was that I don't like basic science research. So, (laughs) but during that time, I also was a volunteer firefighter EMT. So that's sort of what then inspired me to go to medical school. So I, I kind of entered medical school with a plan of, you know, doing emergency medicine, but no plan in doing research. And it wasn't until, you know, a little bit into medical school when I started discovering what clinical research is. And as you mentioned, I was up in Ohio, or up in Cleveland in Ohio. And at that time, I was working at the Cleveland Clinic in the emergency department with a researcher, uh, Frank Peacock, who, you know, definitely took me under his wing and, you know, sort of showed me clinical research and helped me get involved in some projects. And that was cool. And I liked it. But still, I wasn't really sold on a, a research career. I think I did that more as the kind of med student thing, you know, trying to be awesome at everything or whatever. It really wasn't until I think I got into my fourth year, actually, of residency that I really sort of realized that I wanted to do clinical research. And really, you know, at that point, I was pretty sure I wanted to focus on EMS, but I felt a little lost there because I started looking at EMS operations and the politics and everything like that and, and, you know, just running an EMS agency. And that didn't quite seem what I wanted to do either. And it was almost kind of on a a chance that I started taking some summer courses in clinical research, which ultimately was part of my master's program. And that's really when I fell in love. You know, when you're when you're taking a class in statistics and it makes you happy, you know, that's when you know. <laughs> you oh, <know>? yeah. <laughs> you should go into research. And again, that sort of excitement for clinical research came back up for me. And obviously, there's nothing wrong with basic science research as well. But for me, clinical research just felt so much more relevant, so much more human. And so that was really then how I fell into it. Once I started taking those classes, I said, oh, okay, it finally all sort of clicked. You know, it's like clinical research, EMS, you know, put them together and uh, and here I am today. So it sounds like it was a little bit of a mixture of like interest driven with some opportunistic thrown in there, but really, really driven by your interest in, in EMS. Yeah, and I think I've always tried really hard to, follow, you know, what excites me. And that changes over time. And you think you like something and then you start getting into it and you realize, oh, wait, no, I don't really like that. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. I I think maybe a little bit of the key to, you know, what success I've had thus far is that I focused a lot more on what I'm interested in and what I'm excited about, as opposed to just trying to build a CV. 
And I think sometimes as a medical student or resident, you know, we get, you can get kind of hyper-focused on, oh, I got to get this thing so I can talk about it or whatever. And so I'll look awesome when I apply for, you know, this, that, or the other thing. But I think you're much better off just doing things that make you excited and that you're passionate about. And then good things will come from that. Yeah, I completely agree. What kind of mentorship did you have along the way that, that helped you get where you are? Mentorship, I'm sure you've been told many times, is just so critical. And I'll echo that. I mean, it's it's key. And I had a lot of really key mentors along the way. One of my clinical mentors in medical school was Dr. Rita Sadolka, who actually was a, a researcher herself and actually was the former president of ABEM, the American Board of Emergency Medicine, which I did not know at the time. Um, <laughs> but, um, but she was just a great mentor in terms of keeping me excited about the field of emergency medicine. I mentioned Dr. Frank Peacock was sort of the first one that I did clinical research with and just sort of showed me that world and what that was all about. When I got here to Cincinnati, probably my main research mentor, he's a statistician, actually, uh, Dr. Chris Linzel, who was a great clinical researcher as well, not a clinician, but again, really started showing me the ropes on how to do good clinical research. And then probably my biggest mentor has been Dr. Jason McMullen, who's an EMS researcher here in Cincinnati. And so he's the one that does the work that's most closely to what I like to do. Um, and he's just been, you know, with me now for years, kind of showing me the ropes. So definitely, and there's more, but those are, you know, maybe some of the, the key mentors to mention. But I mean, it's critical. Finding mentors is so important. And again, I think so long as you're following what you're passionate about, you will find mentors because if you're just doing it for the CV, people will be like, okay, yeah, I'll help you out, you know, whatever. But if you're passionate and you're driving towards something, people feel that. And then they want to be with you and they want to work. And and I think that a, a good mentor relationship, it's very, very mutually beneficial. And I think when you're passionate about what you're doing, your mentors will see the benefit of mentoring you. And mentoring isn't a chore for them. It's a pleasure and an advantage for them as well. Absolutely. At what point in your career do you feel like you developed a plan or or realized that things were were coming together in a way that you could follow them? I'm still doing that. <laughs> I think, you know, one of the things I think that's funny about about figuring out your career is I feel like every single time I I figure out the box I want to be in, I realize my box is too big. And then I have to narrow it again, and I have to narrow it again, and I have to narrow it again. So initially, just when I figured out I wanted to do EM, right, that was like, okay, done, right? Mm -hmm. And then it was like, oh, well, no, that's that's too big. You know, EM is huge, right? Okay, well, I want to do EMS. Okay, too big, right? Okay, I want to do EMS research. Okay, too big. All right, I want to research sudden cardiac arrest. Too big, you know? So <laughs> I think I continue to figure that out. So I would say there's not so much like there's been one defining moment where all of a sudden everything clicked. And I think if you're waiting for that, maybe it happens for some people, but I think for a lot of people, it's a bit more of a meandering road and that's okay. Riding the waves of research, riding the waves of what's hot, riding the waves of what excites you, I think is fine. And so I'm still doing that. I will say though, that now, you know, whatever I'm finished residency in 2014 and now, however many years ago that was. I think I'm finally now have a pretty clear vision of where I'm going, but it got there slowly over time, a funnel more than a step. 
<laughs> that's a, that's a really good description of it, a, a funnel and narrowing of your interest as you learn more about the topics and, and what you need to narrow too as well. So I noticed that you did a fellowship and that it involved a master's degree. So, you know, what do you think you got out of that fellowship and, and what kind of people do you think would benefit from that pathway? Yeah, I'm actually very passionate about doing training in research if you want a research career. And, you know, I know you and I have talked about this over the years that, and and I stole this from somebody else, so I won't even pretend to take credit for it. But, you know, in my mind, there's kind of like three, three types of people when it comes to research. There's people who don't do research, and then there's people who dabble in research, and then there are researchers. And there's nothing wrong with being in any of those buckets, you know, whatever makes you happy, great. But if you want to be a researcher, you know, I think you really have to dedicate yourself to that. And, you know, residency and even most fellowships, uh, you know, clinical fellowships don't really teach you how to be a researcher, right? I mean, even if you're an EM person and you want to do an ICU fellowship, I mean, that ICU fellowship will be great, teach you so much about critical care, but is it really going to teach you how to do research? I mean, there'll be a little bit, but not a lot. You really need to dedicate time to it. You can do that in lots of different ways, but a lot of universities nowadays have either a master's program or maybe there's a fellowship or whatever. And that just gives you that dedicated time to learn how to do research, just like you learned how to you know, practice emergency medicine or learned how to manage a patient in the ICU or what, what have you. So I think having the protected time is key. For me, my fellowship was an SAEM accredited fellowship that, again, was mostly just a framework to give me time develop relationships with my mentors, and take a bunch of classes that then got me that master's of science in clinical and translational research, which gives, which, you know, with a lot of classes in biostatistics, epidemiology, study design, ethics, et cetera. And I think as a clinical researcher, as a physician investigator, a physician clinical researcher, your, your, your biggest, the biggest thing you add to the team is your clinical expertise. And so to me, you don't do this master's degree because you're going to be programming your own statistics. I mean, you can if you want, if that's what you're passionate about. But it's more about you take your clinical expertise that hopefully you have from residency and fellowship, medical school, whatever, and then you add in enough knowledge about clinical research so you can talk the talk, you can walk the walk. And then, of course, you partner with statisticians, epidemiologists, basic scientists, whatever, to actually build a successful research career. So I think it's critical personally. If you're serious about research, you've got to get some advanced training somehow. And I guarantee you NIH wants to see that as well if you're looking at big federal funding. Yeah, definitely. Keeping in mind that some of the people you may be competing with funding for have no clinical training and have dedicated their career completely to research. And you really want to be able to to compete with that, I think is important. That basic science researcher who's a PhD, you know, he or she is spending 100% of their time writing grants and stuff. So you can't compete with that person if you're just dabbling and, and you know, your research training is the, you know, six lectures of statistics you got in med school, which is what I got. I don't know what anybody else gets. Exactly. <laughs> so you used the phrase protected time. Would you mind explaining that a little more for some of our listeners that may not have heard that? Yeah. Oh, that's a great point. Sorry for using that jargon. You know, the idea of protected time is just time to do other things. You know, as a physician, you know, right now, you know, if you're a medical student or you're a resident or what have you, you know, your main job is to learn medicine and learn how to be a clinician. Um, and that should be 
your focus. But then as you get further along in your career, you know, fellowship or after fellowship, there becomes this kind of give and take between how much time you spend doing clinical care versus how much time can you spend doing research. And this comes down to, I mean, money, uh, frankly, um, you know, because ultimately, if you want to be paid a salary, right, you have to be doing work that brings in money. Um, you know, that unfortunately, that's the way the world goes round. And so um, you see patients and do clinical medicine, that brings in money. If you're a big time researcher, and you have lots of big time grants from NIH, that brings in money. Um, but you know, you can see how well, you know, so a lot of times what people want to do is they want to make this transition from doing lots of clinical care to then doing lots of research. But how do you make that transition? Well, it's hard. And so generally, you know, you need time to do that. And so when we say protected time, a lot of times what we're basically saying is time that you're not doing clinical care so that you can dedicate to research. And so you get that protected time either by taking a pay cut <laughs> or having lots of research to buy your time, basically, you know, because because the NIH not only will pay you money to do the work, but they'll pay you for your time to do the work, you know, which is important. And so and so a lot of times, you know, fellowship, uh, like doing a clinical research fellowship is basically giving yourself protected time to develop your skills so that you can go get that grant funding. And so, and, but, you know, it's important to think about because, you know, I mean, it is a bit of money loss, right? Like I did right. two more years of, of a research fellowship where I wasn't getting paid as an EM attending. I was getting paid as a fellow. Now, again, I'm following my passion, zero regrets about that. We can, you know, I can soapbox on that all day, but I got that protected time myself, right? I basically bought that protected time for myself. Absolutely. That was a good explanation. Thank you. So in the last little bit of time we have, I would love to hear about like your current grant funding and what applications you might be working on. And then something else that I think you did really well was during the pandemic, you made like a rapid shift in your research that I think speaks to something you mentioned earlier, which is like following the hot topics, following the money and figuring out how you can follow your passion while still staying relevant. Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, yeah, I can answer the two questions kind of, they all kind of line up together because what I'm trying to do now is very relevant to what I do in COVID. So yeah, I mean, I, again, my my research focus is sudden cardiac arrest and EMS management of it, uh, but COVID hit, screwed up everything. And it was actually pretty random how I got into it, but essentially, you know, there was a group of people who were starting to think about blood-based biomarkers, and they were thinking about the renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system because of how the virus binds into the human body. And basically, I got approached and say, hey, like, you're working in the ED, you're seeing all these patients, can you get us some blood samples? And I said, you know, like an idiot, I said, sure, that'll be easy, you know, <laughs> and, and of course, it wasn't easy, but we did it. So we collected a bunch of blood. And then, you know, we looked at all these different blood-based biomarkers and how they could inform treatment and prognosis and, and all sorts of different things. And it was very cool very hot. You know, we got grants to do it. We published a gajillion articles um, based on it. Now, of course, COVID hopefully, thankfully is winding down. So that research has wound down a bit, but again, I sort of, I was just kind of following passions. And so then now I, I came back to cardiac arrest and I said, well, why the hell aren't we doing that in cardiac arrest? You know, why aren't we looking at 
these blood-based biomarkers for cardiac arrest. Nobody really looks at them. So that's where a lot of my research is going now. We've just started enrolling for what we call the, the Cincinnati Biorepository to Enhance the Acute Resuscitation of Cardiac Arrest Patients, which comes out to the acronym Cincy Bearcats. And for those of you who don't know, the mascot of the uh, University of Cincinnati is the Bearcats. So I'm very proud of this acronym. I say it all the time to give myself credit. And uh, But yeah, we're already doing it. We're having EMS collect blood samples serially while the patient is still in cardiac arrest, sending them to, to UC, spinning them down, freezing them. And then we're going to start looking you know, at biomarkers in the, in the future. And so I've gotten some pilot funding internally for that, which I'm hopefully going to spin into some you know big federal funding. But even that, you know, again, it's a bit riding the waves of research. It wasn't exactly where I thought I was going to go. I mean, I knew I wanted EMS. I knew I knew I knew I wanted cardiac arrest. Then this COVID thing happened, blood biomarkers. And then I sort of was like, oh, why don't I just put those two things together? And it seems like, you know, hopefully that's a, a winning bet, but we'll see. <laughs> it's still early. <laughs> yeah. It's a great idea though. And, you know, something that we don't talk about enough is uh, the ability of researchers to come up with amazing acronyms for their studies. I think if you look at any NIH studies, you're always impressed by the uh, the acronyms. There are some like acronymfinder.net or something like that. I forget. Don't quote me on that website, but <laughs> Google it. You'll find them. They can be helpful, but you, you sometimes need a little bit of ingenuity yourself too. <laughs> I know you mentioned Dr. McMullen earlier. He has been a great acronym generator as yes. well. Yes, he is very good. He just finished doing a study on uh, uh, ketamine and uh, for EMS pain. And uh, he has a silly acronym that he likes to use for that study that I can't say uh, out loud because uh, it involves curse words, but it's a great acronym. I'll, I'll let you... Uh, it starts with an F and it has a K in it. You can figure it out. <laughs> yeah. If you ever... If anyone here ever meets Dr. McMullen in person, you should ask him about it. It's pretty good. <laughs> Any last words of advice for our early career medical student resident researchers? I think the two things I would say are don't count research out. A lot of great researchers I know, and I think kind of myself included, didn't go into this thinking, I want to do research. I think more what happens is the further you get in the career, the more you're going to be annoyed by things. <laughs> and then you're going to say, well, somebody needs to fix that. And then you start realizing that research is the way to fix it. And the other part of that is that, you know, when you're a medical student research grunt, research seems pretty painful. But when you're the, the guy or gal who's developing the research, coming up with the ideas, and it's stuff you're passionate about, it's actually fun as hell. <laughs> and so a lot, of people, a lot of people fall into it. So, so I think advice number one would be don't assume you know what research is. Don't cross it off your list quite too quickly. And then I think the other thing is that, you know, people a lot of times want to, you know, do research in medical school or do research in residency and, oh, I got to get my name on a paper and blah, 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 blah. And I get it that there's a game to be played. And I'm not going to lie. I played the game some too. But I think what's more important is, as we've talked about, follow what you're passionate about. Do something meaningful that you can talk about. Your name doesn't have to be on a paper. It doesn't even necessarily need to be research. But if you if there's a problem and you're attacking it and you're working hard on trying to solve something, that's really what research is all about. That could be a public health intervention. That could be a quality improvement thing. That could be, I mean, there's so many things that it doesn't necessarily have to be research. But I think just go where you're passionate push hard and try to do something cool and meaningful. And that's going to get you where you want to go in life much more than, Oh, I got my name on this paper about some random topic that I don't care about that. That's not going to blow away anybody. 
Great advice. Great advice. Do something cool. Do something meaningful. Follow your passion. Love it. Thank you, Dr. Benoit, for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and look forward to seeing what you accomplish in the future as well. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.